yeah, we can record it and then um, they can choose whatever they like. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> Hello everybody, this is Shabina Aslam, Creative Engagement Producer for Northern Broadsides and today we're going to be exploring disability and theatre for the Northern Voice podcast. So I've got with me Gobskyo, who does things with word, sound, visuals and by asking questions. Nikki Wildin, who is a theatre director and joint artistic director at DadaFest in Liverpool, Paul James, Senior Creative Associate at Live Theatre Newcastle. So I think to kick this off, I'd like uh, all of you to expand on the introductions I've just given you. So let's go with um, Gobskyor. Hey, uh, I was just going to have you describe yourself as well. So we're actually sitting in our council flat in Newcastle upon Tyne. Uh, we've got a shaved head, we're wearing glasses, we've got a blue, green top on, and we're, we're white and we're quite large. <laughs> and there's sort of flowers and um, trees or paintings and things of them on, on the walls. And we ask a lot of questions, or as a psychiatry now calls it, oppositional defiance disorder. We're not sure that the world out there makes a lot of sense. Art seems to make sense, and a lot of what we do is about asking questions of of power, if you like, sometimes around disability, sometimes around other things as well. We met Northern Broadsides and Shabina, we received uh, one of the Digital Squad commissions last year, so we made a short piece of work called Mazer, partly about our best friend, uh, Marty, who, well, the NHS saved her life back in the 40s. Unfortunately, Austerity NHS um, killed her. And this was a little bit before, but she was amazed, an amazing person. So this very, if you like, ordinary person, tiny person with one lung, it, 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 the things that she did. So that was a short film that we made, and actually it's now turning into a full-length play. So sometimes it's theatre, but also we do other things you know, around the place, sometimes in streets, sometimes in galleries, libraries, and so on. Thank you. Nikki? Uh, hello, I am Nikki Mars Weldon, uh, and as my lovely introduction said, I am a theatre director and joint artistic director at Dada Fest in Liverpool. I am a white woman uh, with bleached white hair, which is short on the sides and a bit like a, a mop on top today. Uh, I'm wearing black headphones, black rim glasses and a green t-shirt. Uh, and I'm sat in my uh, in my little, little tiny room uh, here in Manchester today. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a theatre director. I've worked as a stage manager and actor for a number of years. And the last kind of six years, I've moved more into theatre directing. And this is where I've found my kind of passion and my home. I've worked extensively with Grey Eye Theatre Company. Uh, and yeah, and recently, since March, has been joint artistic director at Dada Fest. And if people don't know Dada Fest, it is it's not just a festival, it's an artist incubation hub for deaf, disabled and neurodivergent artists, uh, for people to come together and try out ideas, kind of like throwing spaghetti at a wall, what sticks, what doesn't. And uh, we work with artists to kind of, you know, push those ideas forward. Um, yeah, so I'm still... Um, 
wading through Arts Council uh, applications, uh, but yeah, finally getting to, to work with artists, which is really exciting. Paul? Yeah, so I'm um, Paul James. I'm a Senior Creative Associate at Live Theatre in Newcastle, I'm mainly working with the Young People and Children's Programme. Um, I've been at Live Theatre since 1998. I've uh, formed the Youth Theatre here and the Education Department here. Um, prior to that, I was an actor. I was an actor for 13 years, working with a variety of companies, Liverpool Everyman, um, Talawa, Colchester, uh, Mercury, uh, Bristol Old Vic, a whole range of different companies. I won't go through that as, as an actor. And then um, I um, got the job here at, at, at Live Theatre. So right now I kind of, I produce work for young people, I direct work for young people, and I also uh, direct as a freelance uh, director also. Thank you, Paul. I liked your um, method of describing who you were, Gobscure and Nikki, and I feel uh, perhaps Paul and I should do that as well. Um, so I'm brown, and right now I look very, like, I think I've got a very round face right now, and I've got grey hair, and I've got um, black-rimmed spectacles on. So, Paul, how about yourselves? A little description. Yeah, so I'm uh, a black man. Um, parents come from um, uh, Jamaica. I'm sitting in uh, an office at Live Theatre with a bookshelf behind me. I've got a green um, sweater on, I've got my earphones on, and I've got my uh, face mask for me, which is like a Harry Potter, a blue Harry Potter face mask that someone made for me, which I, uh, which I use regularly. So carrying on, um, as Gobscure said, uh, we've met before, and uh, we did have a conversation prior to creating this podcast where we thought it would be useful to deconstruct the whole disability label. So that, that word deconstruction I think is really interesting. So the very first act of COVID by the governmentals in Drowning Street was to disappear the word disability. So the very first thing that they did is they literally raised the D word disability, replaced it with vulnerable. And of course, they didn't even use BSL, British Sign Language, to do it, which I think, in a sense, a very strong signal that um, people, and account to what disability might mean, or you know, the various different you know, descriptions and so on. But I think if that word had remained, you know, the things that, so I'm in my mid-50s, and I've had some legal rights for about 25 years. <laughs> so, you know, not a long time. And of course, that means that all sorts of people, including theatres, legally have to meet certain standards. And I have to say, mostly they don't. <laughs> but, you know, so the thing is that there are all sorts of different versions out there. So I think the first thing was that we, in, in my case, you know, I, I was very upset by the disability being erased and called vulnerable, which then becomes kind of partly pat on the head, sort of a bit of charity, ah, oh, poor you, but also bad you, stay inside, stay indoors, literally be invisible and sort of, you know, die and don't, don't bother us. And of course, in, you know, and in terms of the statistics, and of course, disability does relate closely to poverty. So obviously gender, 
race, sexuality are also part of that as well. So in terms of the North East where I'm based, and again, depending on which definition you use, but roughly a quarter of the population, so roughly 25% of the population in the North East are disabled, roughly about 20% in the rest of the country. Now, again, this thing of what, yes, so what does the word mean? And obviously, here we're using it to cover a wide range, and I realise it is contested, and you know, also we should be using the word deaf, neurodivergent. Also, of course, people may wish to define themselves in, in other ways uh, around you know, being mad identified and things like this. But I, it, that thing of the social model of disability, so it's basically it, essentially society does disable us. You know, there are multiple models, and that's perhaps for, for me, and I think for quite a few people, a useful way of looking at it is more if like society doing it to us <laughs> you know although obviously that perhaps doesn't recognize pain and all sorts of other things as well but you know broadly speaking there is this thing of in the northeast 25 percent of the population have something going on long term that significantly impairs their ability to interact with the world out there <laughs> if you like I, and that's a very sort of crude definition definition i'd use and as i say uh, the official statistics that were published for um, literally the year prior to COVID. So 80% of adults, uh, non-disabled adults are working, only 50% of those with disabilities are. So there is this, you know, and it, it is also one of the big structural oppressions alongside race, alongside gender, alongside sexuality, alongside age. So it's one of the other you know, it's hate crime. It's you know, it, it, we have protected characteristics, but they are mostly ignored or missed. And uh, the government, you know, they did erase us about fifteen months ago. So there is a large pool of people with something going on that means that it's a lot harder. It's a lot more expensive. We're we're a lot poorer. We're supposed to be kept away from those people outside there. And uh, you know, and at the front, at my front door, my council flat in Newcastle, I do have um, Octavia Butler's "The Normals Don't Survive." I've written that up the wall. So Octavia Butler, um, who also, amongst many other things, you know, this this black woman who also had disabilities, and you know, and that was about two hundred pages into one of the fantastic novels. But the normals don't survive. So despite our erasure, we're still here. And I realise that you know, other people have different takes, and it's you know different descriptions and so on, but. Roughly speaking, in 20 to 25 percent of the population have something significant going on that is painful, it's expensive, that the world out there doesn't get, doesn't understand, puts barriers in our way. Uh, it's expensive. We're, we're, we're a lot poorer, and that you know there is a structural oppression there. So that's the starting point. And and to say the other bit of it was this: as society, this word unlocking, and obviously theatres unlocking. I'm not sure that disabled folks have been asked our opinions or considered in this. So this return to so-called normality, whatever that is, and I think it was Alif Shaffer, the writer, who said, well, normal before that was, was rubbish. It was, <laughs> it was you know, for many people, it was, it was appalling. But this race to get back to something else, I don't know that any consultation of people, you know, people with disabilities, impairments, neurodivergences, deafness and so on, have really been considered or, or factored in. I think we are being left behind again. Thank you. So um, can you talk a little bit about the different models, the social model and the medical model? Well, and also the charitable model. So, you know, charitable model is a kind of, ah, are you one of the good deserving? And obviously there's also charitable model is kind of, are you one of the good deserving ones? Do you behave? Do you do your Oliver Twist? You know, please, sir, can I have a, 
a wheelchair, a walking stick, a, you know, can I have some BSL occasionally, something like that. Medical is the experts or experts by inexperience saying that's a medical issue, that's a medical problem, we can fix you, um, This, you know, that bit is broken and we chop it off or we put this in or we do that or we give these pills or something like this. Social model is society disables us. Uh, you know, it is people's and often also organizational, institutional sort of not considering our needs, our requirements. So, you know, that fact that it's not that we can't work or things, it's that there are so many barriers. So I'm sure that other folks could say, describe it better, but essentially society out there, the you know, what Octavia Butler called the normals, <laughs> there's so many barriers in the way, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like being punched in your face sort of several hundred times a day. <laughs> and that's a good day. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really clear explanation, uh, Gobskill. It's that thing, isn't it? It's not your impairment that disables you, it's society by the physical and attitudinal barriers that society places on you. So for me, I'm not disabled in my house. I can use my wheelchair in the house. I have a stairlift, I have a ramp. The only time I'm disabled is probably when my partner puts things on the top, you know, high shelf in the kitchen and I can't reach them. Uh, but we won't go into that. Um, you know, I'm not disabled until I leave the house and then I go to the, the tram stop and the lifts aren't working uh, and there's no other kind of access to that tram stop. Or, you know, imagine those days where the lift is working, you know, maybe not that many, but I managed to get on the tram and I need space for my wheelchair and somebody won't move from that wheelchair space or they tut at me or they talk to the person I'm travelling with. Like, then I become disabled because that's in their in their behaviour, in their attitude towards me. Um, and I think as well, charity model... The way I think of charity model is that typical, they tilt their head to the side and do that, ah. Um, so if you ever find yourself doing that at a disabled person, then yep, that's charity model. Oh, yeah. Like the whole thing that we're, we're beggars, you know, that's where the term handicap comes from, isn't it? That we had our caps in our hands out on the street. Um, and I, I was uh, experienced it a couple of years ago where, and this is the most middle class story I ever tell of being on the cut in London, sat in my wheelchair outside Pret, uh, drinking a soya latte. And I was on the phone to Mandy Colleran because we were going to a workshop and uh, just my cop out chatting on the phone. And this man walked past and put a pound in my coffee cup uh, because it was just automatic woman in wheelchair coffee cup in hand must be begging and like you know there's nothing more that like uh, i was gonna swear but i won't annoy you than someone doing that but like the fact that it's only a pound that wouldn't buy a new coffee and you're in london as well so it's like five times the price um but yeah it still goes on it's like yeah it's that typical does do they take sugar when they talk to the person that you're with so yeah could I add something to that? And it's a really question, you know, for Paul and, and, and that kind of thing. But also with the charitable bit, it, it, well, you know, so we're talking about theatre, but, you know, we, we have to almost like perform our disability, don't we? So it's a, so it's the, with things like the charitable model, is it a case of if you're one of the good crips, you know, if you, you know, if you look right, but if you're one of the ones, the stroppy ones, the bad, the angry ones or whatever it is, that, you know, so is there a division that there's a kind of, we have to, 
present a certain way and then yeah I, I think this is something that I find really interesting particularly in theatre and TV is that if you look like you're a non-disabled person using a wheelchair you're probably going to get a lot more work I think it, de it depends on what you look like can we give you your access requirements as to whether you're going to work like and I've experienced that when I was an actor uh, I remember being told once, oh, you're never going to get that much work. You, you need to, you need to lose weight. Uh, you need to like, yeah, have to sit in your chair in a certain way. Like you need to look more like a model. You're like, I ain't no model. Do you know what I mean? I'm not in this business for that. Like, and that was an agent telling me that, that, you know, supposedly works with disabled artists. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, there is very much, are you... And I hate to say this, but for a lot of actors, are you easy on the eye? Uh, and that, and the industry still very much works like that, I think particularly with regards to disabled and non-disabled. And also, um, can, can, we, can we manage your access requirements? Like, that's a big thing as well, I think. Yeah, I worked in radio for a while and um, they cast visually. Yeah, they would normally they would see people on the telly that they liked for radio and then cast them. No, I mean it doesn't matter what you look like. I was because I was just going to say I I loved doing radio work because I felt more freeing. Nobody knew like as I was voicing this fourteen year old girl that was giving birth. Nobody knew it was me. But then also my first radio job was actually as a disabled character. So I was like, brilliant, but I found that really interesting. But then I also kind of believe that's how all of the industry works anyway, Shabino, it's visually. Yeah. Uh, well, um, maybe there's more, your experience is more positive than mine then. Maybe it's changed a lot. So, Paul, yeah. I know that we had a quick conversation previously, and uh, for yeah. you, um, the whole dis dis disabled label is quite new, isn't it? I think. Yeah, I was um, I was diagnosed with um, MS in 2007. So prior to that, I was, you know, I, I didn't have a disability. Um, and that was quite an eye-opener for me on a number of levels, really, because then I had to start thinking in a different way because as, as a black actor, which I was, I was thinking about those issues. You know what I mean? In theatres, those those my main issues. I was thinking about, you know, what opportunities are there for black actors? You know, how are we being represented on stage? So those are my, I became quite expert in those, that, that debate. And then after 2007, when I was um, diagnosed, then it's like, all of a sudden, I have to start thinking about my disability and what that meant. So it meant also that I was looking at the organisation I work for in a different way. I was looking at the accessibility issue. Um, because yes, we are on paper, we satisfy all the sort of criteria in terms of accessibility. But when I became disabled, I sort of noted a, uh, noticed a lot more things that I hadn't take, taken notice of before. So that was really, really interesting. It's about, okay, how do I get into this toilet? How do I, how do I flush that? How do I, how do I get into the office? Do I have to keep calling someone if I want them to open a door to go into the toilet? So it all became, it was just all so challenging and all so frustrating for me. 
just want to ask you something, Paul, if you don't mind. So in terms of representation then, mm-hmm. uh, representation of black disabled men. I just think it's been um, a challenge for me in my head, all of it. You know, I've had to sort of, I mean, part of my journey is acceptance, you know, um, thinking, right, I am now disabled. How do I deal with that? I mean, in the early days, I would hide away. I would try to get to work early. In my early stages of MS, I tried to get to work early so that no one could see me limping around. Um, I would stay at my desk. I wouldn't move around because I just didn't want to be labeled um, disabled. So a lot of it was getting my head around that. And my partner would be saying, Paul, why don't you just come out and tell them what's going on? And I didn't because I was trying to understand it myself. (laughs) You know, I didn't know what MS meant. I didn't know what impact it was going to have on me, my family, my, my work, anything. And I found soon as I started to accept it and I was able to come out from my personal experience, that's when life got a little easier. And then I can start to drop that and concentrate on, on the social models, which were um, um, uh, incredible in terms, of the, in terms of barriers. So I'm assuming a lot of your fear was, obviously it's very quite personal, but also because the way society frames disability, I think there's a, perhaps a lot of fear about suddenly uh, one becomes aware that being disabled is... Um, is a burden or it's um, difficult and then you are having to work through all of that as well all the messages society creates around disability and i think it was something like in my i'm a mobility scooter now but um, in the early days I, I would try not to use a stick because i didn't want that to become my badge <laughs> you know what i mean this these are the things I'm, I'm being personal with you these are the things i had to deal with um and i just thought i just wanted to just walk around the streets and just and just to be like everybody else you know but because my disability was affecting me physically then i was seen and then people would look at you people would look feel sorry for you people would be concerned for you people would be trying to be overly kind to you you know what i mean all this all this messaging that i was getting was becoming really quite difficult to sort of deal with um, so, yeah, it was a massive change. And in terms of how I see it um, politically, it's a dual form of oppression I have. You know, I have oppression because I'm a black man or a black person, and I have also now have oppression um, because I'm disabled. But saying that, there's a lot of things I have to, I have to sort out in my head as well, which, which is taking time. I'm still working through it, but... Um, the biggest thing was acceptance. And then once you've got the acceptance, then you've got all the challenges. Thank you. So I'd like to ask all of you about the work that you do in um, the art and in theatre and how the conversation we've been having informs your work. So Nikki, as yours is quite avant-garde and experimental and developmental, maybe we could start with you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, in at the deep end, and um, I—it's interesting, isn't it? All this talk around uh, disabled and social model, because 
because uh, uh, this, this will link into my work it's probably a long-winded way but I didn't discover social modeling until I was 21 and I'd been disabled since I was three and what's really interesting though is um when you become disabled you don't magically get given a handbook of like here's what you need to know here's how you need to make the world accessible like but it's amazing how many people see me as a theatre director going you're going to have all the answers to everybody's access and you're like no I don't because actually I know mine through my own lived experience but as I'm developing and creating my work I'm learning by the people I have in my room in my rehearsal room the creatives that I work with uh by just talking to people and having those conversations of what are your access requirements what do you need for us to put in place to enable you to do your best work and also thinking for me how like if I have my mates who are deaf visually impaired uh, neurodivergent come and see my work what are they going to need in place in the actual performance to make it accessible to them so for me like you know social models affected my life not just for me as an individual but the work that I've gone on to make and the people that I've met and I I love it I love taking all that into consideration you know it's not a barrier it's a creative opportunity anything can be a creative opportunity and you're opening your work out to many more people to come and see it I think the thing that I'm struggling with at the moment is that disabled people have been making creatively accessible work and being adventurous and experimental with it for the last 25, 30 years I know. I mean, Grey Eye's been around for 40 years, but suddenly non-disabled people come along and make a piece of work that's got a sign language interpreter in and everybody wets their pants thinking how amazing it is. And I'm like, no, 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 the movement has actually been doing this for the last 40 years. But it, again, it's that thing of oppression is that it's almost like we have to wait for the non-disabled people to do it, to validate the work. And that is what's really frustrating me at the moment. And I was going to add to that. I, mean, I totally agree with everything that I was saying. Uh, you know, some things are the kind of also when you're making disabled, often we're set up to fail. You know, so we're not given even the basic resources that let's say. And, and again, obviously, as I was this that i mean even though so the word intersectional and i find very hard to pronounce but i totally agree that in terms of race or gender whether that's cis or trans in terms of sexuality ageism all those crossovers so if you have just one of the things going on it's like you're being punched constantly it's this structural oppression if you've got two three however many it's but it is this thing of from the disability perspective alone it's like you know we're not it's not even that we're given it's not even that you know there's no additional to support access it's like we're it's like last minute or something quick or a quick fix or you're put in that special box or that's that box over there we're not seen as and at the same as any of the aspects of this we're not seen as mainstream it should be a kind of this is great work this is quality work this is fantastic work end of uh but you know it's like either being set up to fail what and then there is also that, that phrase cripping up uh, and the one around mental distress that I use is nutting up. So um, people faking it, <laughs> pretending, etc., or casting puppets or whatever it happens to be. So, <laughs> I, Just picking up there on what you said, isn't it? It's around 
the industry, this bigger work, the, I think it's the world actually, has that thing around a disabled artist on stage automatically goes, ah. And, and that, I grew up in Gloucestershire, um, and this is probably the first time I've said it publicly, but I fought against uh, me doing, people thought me doing drama was about pain management or therapy. And I was very much like, no, 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 you white middle class women in your Laura Ashley or Hobbs outfits, don't try and tell me that what I'm doing is about therapy. It's because I want to work. I want to work as an actor. I want to be a professional actor. I want to, I, I just want to be part of it. I loved Annie growing up. I believed I could play Annie in a musical. Why not? You know, it's around having those aspirations. But yet growing up, I never really had those role models. And the role models that I did have, brilliant, like your Matt Fraser's, Lisa Hammond's, your Francesca Martinez, Mandy Collar and Ali Briggs, brilliant. You know, I know I'm sitting on the shoulders of giants, but yet 30 years later, uh, we haven't added many to those role models for those younger people. Uh, so it's around like it, it's the, the aspiration. But again, it's around society, the wider society controlling us as artists when we're allowed, when we're given permission to be seen and to be heard and to be valued. And I think as a movement, we're really all continuously that that fight of our work, like the 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 people judge the quality of our work rather than the process of making the work and also i think what's really interesting is that when i'm working a lot with writers i'm really keen for us to like go the typical way of telling a story the story structure is very white non-disabled eurocentric way of telling stories like for us as artists now let's rip up that rule book and let's let's just tell our stories as a theatre director, I don't read the, the plays from the canon because none of them speak to me as a disabled woman. So therefore, I have no interest in going out and doing whatever one of the plays from the canon would be, like whether that's a Pinto or a Beckett, because they don't interest me. They don't tell my story. So it is that thing of like, let's really rip up that rule book. Let's rip up that idea of the hero's journey, the structure. And let's start making our own structure. Let's play with form. Thank you, Nikki. So, Paul, how, does, um, how do you create uh, positive opportunities for young people at live theatre? Well, I, I'm really interested and I have been interested in sort of using um, theatre sort of to develop self-confidence. Yes, I'm really interested in uh, using theatre to sort of develop confidence in young people. Um, I'm interested in the sort of various skills that they can learn from participating in theatre and drama. So, and also I come from a background in the 80s, in the 1980s, where there was a, seemed like there was a consciousness in the young people's movement around disability, around um, um, uh, diversity. And that was a great, great movement in the 80s. I worked with the Crucible Theatre uh, and the Theatre Education and Community Team. And we were working with actors um, from Grey Eye. We were doing, we were looking at what sort of messages we were, we were presenting of black people on stage. We were very conscious of all those things. And then all of a sudden, all that got wiped out and it seemed like we're starting again. And this is just absolutely unbelievable. I just couldn't believe what's happening. So, yeah, for me, it's about 
using some of those some of that stuff I learned when I first started and keeping that going. So I am looking at images of women that presenting on stage. I am looking at the language, the language that's being used in terms of black people and diversity and disability and all those issues. And I think that's really, really important. But there was a stage where it just was seen as, oh, that's being right on. That's being right on. And it just cancelled everything out that we were struggling for in the 80s. You know, and it's a shame that, you know, that many young people's companies are being cut. It's not surprising because we were doing dangerous work. We were talking about AIDS. We were talking about gays. We were talking about blacks. We were talking about old people. We we're talking about all those areas of oppression that, that, that now we're kind of talking about again, you know, which it's, and it's like going back to the beginning and it's very, very, very frustrating. So I try to sort of build Keep that in mind with anything I'm doing with the department. I'm thinking of all the areas of prejudice, and I try to make sure that I have a positive spin on that. I I find it really um, exhausting. I feel like even working with an organisation, and you feel like, oh God, here's the black man talking about diversity again. Now he's talking about disability, and it's just like. It's exhausting. It's so exhausting that you just want to just shut up and not have to deal with it, you know. So I I find that really that's a massive challenge, um, and I would just like to be in a situation where you could just sit back, and it's being done, you know. Why do you have to feel that responsibility all the time? And now about the position now, I'm thinking well if I can't, and there's all sorts of restrictions on building based theatres and it's challenging, challenging times, resources, all the rest of it. And I'm at the stage now saying, well, I'm uh, late 50s, 57. I'm thinking, well, this is time to do the sort of work that you want to do. I'm going to do that. Even if I'm working as a freelancer, I go out, I'm doing work with refugees. I've got, you know, I'm going out doing the stuff that I want to do. And I don't want to be restricted by the programming of a building. I mean, I will always say, Okay, let's. Um, this is an idea I want to do. I want to do a project about um, mixed race young people, you know, because that's a voice we don't hear a lot of, you know. So I'm very interested in that sort of voice. And if my if my theatre can't make that happen for resources reasons or whatever, then it's for me. I'm I'll make it happen. I'll go out and I'll do it freelance. And that's the stage where I'm at now because I'm thinking I can't be there waiting for people to make my make the work that I'm interested. in in happen i've just got to go out and do it and that's that's kind of exciting and a bit frustrating at the same time gobskill uh, so and I, I totally agree and i was going to add and these are what other people say so uh, I, I love the phrase so i think it was the british theatre guide said theater not theaters you know i the stuff we're creating not the it happens in that building at that point in time so it was theater not theaters the other thing so um and you know so i'm so there's a in the Northeast, there's Curious Arts, and they're also part of the Queer Arts Network across the Greater North, and so do various things with them. And one of the things that one of the people involved in that said was, well, it was kind of like, in any room, in whoever you are, whichever aspect of identity, it's almost like you need two of you at least, because those organisations, even the good ones, are kind of gaslighting you and doing all these sorts of things, it, perhaps unintentionally, but it's that thing of, you know, I think you know, that th their comments, this is someone else, and I totally agree with that, it's like you need 
let's say at least two of you. So if it's around disability, at least two disabled people so that you've kind of got each other's back or you're in that thing and you kind of look at each other and catch each other's eye and you're like, ah, again, or something like that. So it's kind of, you know, you need that backing, that support, that. <laughs> so Nikki, how about your work? Yeah, listening to this is really interesting, isn't it? Because I'm going through this uh, thing at the moment where I'm like, I see my non-disabled peers that are probably all 10 to 15 years younger than me having many more opportunities because they've not had to face those barriers. Uh, I know some of them have in various other forms, but like access wise they can easily get into a place like and i think that's that's something i'm really conscious of with working with young disabled people of i realize how little theater i actually see because i can't get into those buildings or you know there's only two wheelchair spaces and they're not available on the dates i want to go and i think about that across the board like there's very few signed performances or caption performances or audio described performances so even from a young age that idea of theatre and culture is very far removed for any young deaf disabled or neurodivergent person in the world today and that's really quite sad access to art is a human right isn't it uh, and and it, it should be there for every everybody to to take to take part in without feeling without feeling judged so you know yeah me walling in my kind of self-pity at the moment of going oh doing that comparison thing of oh look at so-and-so's career trajectory I think that thing of wallowing self-pity at the moment and doing that career comparison thing of where's so-and-so at, um, it's really enlightening to hear, like, again, being in a room of disabled creatives, isn't it? Where you go, I'm not the only one that feels like this. Um, but, but there, yeah, it's, it's, it's everything that, like, Paul and Gobskill have said. It's that thing of there's such a weight on your shoulders to be that person, that spokesperson. And, and, it, and I think that when I referred to earlier, being given the magic handbook, even we don't have the answers because we're still trying to navigate life. And I think, you know, through the work that I've done, I'm always keen to bring in deaf, disabled, neurodivergent perspectives um, because that's that's really important. And, you know, the work I make is around pushing what what theatre is uh, and who it's for. Um, and, and whether that's from, you know, whether I'm making a piece for young audiences or I'm making a piece at the Royal Exchange Theatre is around actually let me let me bring in my mates the people that I want to see my work that's what it's about so how am I going to make this interestingly and creative for them um, can you give me an example of something that you made so uh work for young people uh is probably the one I'm most couple of but one that I have got the flyer up here on my wall is the forest of forgotten discos which was made at for contact theater at Hope Mill a couple of Christmases ago it was written by the brilliant disabled writer Jackie Hagen uh, and it's it tells the story of a young girl red who's run away from home and she finds herself meeting this uh, 
the robot of the forest called Alexa, who has all the knowledge, and she meets three bears. Uh, we have Bear Hugs, Bear Grills, and Bear Minimum. And they've all been, they're, the, they're these forgotten teddy bears. And, you know, through the, through the story, they all realise that they've got a lot more than what they, they think they have. And Red decides it's okay for her to go back home. But for that show, I was keen to make it as fun and accessible as possible. And I hate kids' theatre that feels like it's worthy and very middle class. So this was everything that, you know, this wasn't that, basically. There were fart jokes. There was... uh, And that's the interesting thing, isn't it? Probably the best production meeting. How do you make a fart accessible to everyone? So (laughs) visually impaired people, you have to get the right fart noise and the exact length. But then how do you make that accessible for deaf audiences? Not only do you put, like, speakers around the, the space, but also, oh, let's flash the lights. But they can't just be a standard flash. Well, let's make them green flashes. Let's make the actors react in slow motion by wafting their noises and, and falling backwards to show the strength of the fart. Let's add a bit of smoke machine and bubbles. Like, you know, that's the fun. So that was around everybody in that entire audience experiencing that in some way, shape or form. But we had Amazing. we had integrated sign language in that and all the audio description was fitted into the script so young people didn't have to wear headphones. And, and then another piece is Cutting It, which is by Charlene James, which focuses on two young girls experiencing FGM. And I was really keen for one of the actors in this piece to be a deaf performer communicated through sign supported English and I had to negotiate I had to say why I wanted a deaf actor in that performance what I thought they could bring to it to not only the writer but also the theatre um and you just go would I have to have that same conversation if it was just a general casting uh you know and by casting that actor it you know it makes the story universal that this is happening to any you know any young girl um yeah and it's but but to me it it made it feel more real because it was a representation of the people i know in my world thank you now i know both paul and gobscure wanted to say something paul yeah i was just yeah i was just kind of thinking of you know the the stage i'm at at the moment and what really frustrates me as a um disabled director now is that I feel kind of trapped you know what I mean I want to go out to different cities I want to direct things I've been in this business 33 years I've been an actor I've been a producer I've been all those things and it's just I feel pra- I feel completely trapped because I you know I just think in the next few years I just want to do different things I want to do exciting things you know but it's just like I think to myself right I gotta catch a train what if I want to go to a toilet Okay, how, you know, what's, uh, what kind of a support am I going to get? If I go to London, where am I going to stay? Is it going to be an accessible building? You know, it's this whole range of social things that I think restricts me. And that makes me really frustrated because, you know, maybe I could act again, you know, maybe I could go acting. Oh, but then again, I'll go there, but where will I stay? How will I get this in place? There's so many things for us to have to think about. And things that I didn't have to think about in my previous life now, but it's like a whole range of things. And it makes you feel slightly kind of trapped. So most of my work, uh, most of the stuff I want to achieve has to happen locally, you know. And I would like to do a lot more work nationally, but because of all this, with the social model, (laughs) it just prevents you from doing a lot, you know. 
And it's just a simple thing as getting to London or a simple thing as to getting to even Leeds, which is to stay on the road, you know. And each one of us have our different needs. It's, it's, a, it's a challenging thing because we have different, I have different needs to any of you guys there, you know. And it's just like, how do we, how do we deal with that? How do theatres, cultural organisations uh, deal with that, you know? So, yeah, that's a big, big frustration. But i tell you one thing. During the lockdown, it's given me a lot of time to think. And I feel now that I'm just going to say it as it is. I'm going to challenge things in the way that they should be challenged. And I don't care. And also, I'm older, so it doesn't matter. So it's given me lots of time to think about, say what you have to say, Paul. Don't care if you're offending people. It has to be said. Don't care if you're tired of saying it. I'll start all again. It's kind of like a new start for me. Thank you. Gobskill? Well, I was going to actually comment, and it was both Paul and Nikki Fraser, and that very crude word, money. Cool. You know, so if you're dis- as I mentioned at the start, if you're disabled, you're much more likely to be poorer than non-disabled people. And, you know, so part of being disabled, let alone the intersectional other bits of it, you're more you're much more likely to be a lot poorer. Two, so if you do want to go and see a show or anything, you actually, A, you're investing a lot more money into, but also you might have to get a taxi or whatever it is. So the, the less money you have, actually you're spending not just a greater proportion, but you're having to spend a lot more money. And then, you know, I mean, you know, you may not be able to take water with you, so you may have to buy a bottle of water for your meds or whatever it is, so it costs a lot more. Then you're a lot more knackered, exhausted, worn. That's the psychological of actually all the stress of going and so on. So it doesn't just take, you know, you're going to see a show that's an hour and a half and it takes, you know, so it takes three hours out of your life. It might take a day or whatever out of your life. Then, you know, it's also the psychology of all that getting into the building, going to see the show. Then, you know, that thing of, sorry, but is the show... Are, are we going to see people cripping up, nutting up? Are we going to have some worthy old pat on the head thing? Is there going to be uh, that trope of, you know, the kind of, ah, oh, that plucky spirit or whatever, or that angry whatever, or that, those kinds of things. So, again, that's sort of being punched. So there's that kind of the the literal cost in terms of money, but also our time. You know, if I want to see something, you know, it, it, it absolutely might wear me out, and I'm just knacking, I just come home sort of in tears or something like that. But... In in answer, one of the things, so I mentioned Mazer about, you know, my, my best friend and this thing of the normals don't survive. One of the things is that disabled people, because we spend a lot of time perhaps lying down or in pain or, you know, without money or something, we're brilliant problem solvers. So this thing of, you know, theatre, theatres, performance, whatever you want to call it, is that we actually have these amazing skills. So stories that aren't being told, but also these things about problem solving, turning things around. So amazing problem solving skills. And one of the things that, as part of Mesa, and thanks to the theatre company Slung Low in Leeds, um, we did blow up the system the other week. So literally explosives met various items that stand for the system. Um, so, uh, and, you know, and I think it was Nikki that nominated DWP brown envelopes, although a few other people did too. So brown envelopes went kaboom, high heels went kaboom, uh, DSM, the Diagnostic and Sadistic manual as I call it. We we blew up three of them. So, you know, Aid Edmondson took a frying pan to Maggie Thatcher twice just to make sure we blew it up three times. We blew up Monopoly. So we did 
theatrically blow up the system. <laughs> she is slung low, and that includes some of those oppressions around mental distress and poverty and disability and so on. So, so there's a solution. But money, cost, is a thing we have to talk about. Yeah, I, th- I think so. And also on that, like, um, sparked off by what both of you said, like that thing of, yeah, totally agree, Paul, that I can't just go off and do whatever, which made me think of, like, that comparison I've been doing to non-disabled peers is that they've been able to have those spaces to try out and fail, which includes those kind of fringe venues, but they're mostly non-accessible, aren't they? Whereas us for disabled people, and also due to the lack of access to training, which is either through through the fact that we've never been given the opportunity to be in youth theatre and come up that way and know that there's even a career for us, but the lack of access to drama schools and even universities and colleges, uh, that we're all learning on the job most of the time or we're doing it by, you know, the amount of books I've got on my bookshelf. I remember buying most of those when I was like 18, 19 out of my student grant because, you know, I, I couldn't maybe get to those lectures or I didn't have that opportunity to learn those when I was younger because theatre was never deemed as a career for me. So we're constantly having to upskill ourselves rather than feeling like we can be catered for in the industry. Um, so, yeah, th- I think what arts can do is to kind of make sure they are investing in deaf and disabled people and that can be as much as like providing free space for people to come and try those ideas out because actually the way that we learn is by failing isn't it so that's you know we need we need that as disabled artists uh and 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 to grow thank you nikki that's all paul please uh, yeah, so I was going to say, as and as sort of uh, buildings, theatres, I think we need to be a bit more proactive, you know, and look at the um, artists that we have in our own regions. You know, it's quite easy to say, oh, let's team up with Grey Eye, you know what I mean? And what about all the artists that are here in the northeast that we're not actually um, attracting or working with? And that's why... Um, uh, that's a job that I think that needs to be done. Meet the artist, talk to the artist, find out what they what, what they want to do, and that's not, there's not a lot, of, a lot of that happening. And that's why I think um, this this consortia has been an eye opener for me. And this consortia is a is a group of disabled artists in the northeast who are about making the invisible visible. And and it was an eye opener for me seeing different artists, seeing photographers, seeing. Um, writers, seeing uh, a whole range of different artists from various backgrounds uh, who are disabled. And I think theatres should be making those links with those artists and talking to them and finding out what they do, because it's certainly been an eye-opener for me. Absolutely. So I'm conscious of the fact that we've been talking for an hour, so I'm going to have to try to wrap this up. Um, So what I've learnt is that we've grown from models of activism. We're brilliant problem solvers and um, going, f- and the f- process is fun, right? And we want more of that. We want to be seen and we want to ha- be allowed to have fun just like everybody else. And also for going forward into the future, we're determined to speak out more. So I'd like to go around now and perhaps you could all 
you could talk about the future, what you're um, planning to do next, or final thoughts, Gobskill? Blowing up the system. Some more. Uh, this summer, um, Fat, Mad, Big Kid, Bisexual Dissidents, uh, partly in theatre, partly outside, partly with other art forms. So um, that, that's called, a piece called Rose Carved in Rain, uh, happening here and also in Edinburgh. So, um, but yes. <laughs> Thanks. Nikki? Uh, it's a really hard one, isn't it, just to think of a, a kind of statement. I mean, this has been a great discussion. Uh, no, it's been brilliant. Um, I think it's around, I, I want to say, you know, aiming this at, non-disabled people as well it's shared responsibility um just do it and if you like that famous quote from that brilliant kevin costner movie that i always say if you build it they will come uh <laughs> continuously to do that and let's continue to rip up the form paul i think it's all about challenging the prevailing orthodoxies it's about um making the invisible visible. It's about um, having our voices heard. And I think we can't give up the struggle. And I think we have to work together in order to make that happen. So thank you. Thank you for participating today. It was absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers, Shalina. Hello. I am Millie Gaston. In this segment, I will be chatting to artists across an array of disciplines, from writers to performers, backstage and anything in between about their experience of working in theatre. I am so excited to introduce Paul Wilshaw. Paul is an agent for change at Leeds Playhouse and assistant producer at Mind the Gap. He is also part of the Get It Done New Producer Training at Bradford Producing Hub. Paul has worked for Beyond Festival in Leeds, which is a festival focused on artists with learning disabilities. You may have also seen Paul at the closing ceremony of the Paralympic Games as a guest performer. Paul, welcome. Can you tell us what you were performing at the Games? Yep, so I was uh, one of the performers on the, um, the volunteer performers on the trucks um, that went around uh, the Olympic Stadium with Coldplay, Rihanna and JC. And we were on a VW, um, two VW Beatles mashed together, and it was the truck named, uh, a car named Toad. So it was made into a Toad, so it had eyes done by the wheels of the car. Um, it was just, uh, and then we had face paint on, um, and you literally were holding on to the legs of the um, Toad because you were like, uh, and it was t- taken around by like a tractor kind of thing that went around the whole of the stadium and um, it was an amazing wow. experience to yeah. just being part of that. Well, what an extraordinary experience. So when was it that you decided you wanted to become a theatre producer? So I had always been interested in it um, and I was the assistant producer for a show down in, uh, well, I was produce. uh no, Assistant to the producer for a show down in Wimborne. I've been assistant producer. I've been a co-producer. Uh, so uh, it must be around 20, 2010, so 11 years ago now, that I um, really got into it. Um, 
and I was the assistant producer to a show called Breathe, which was done on Weymouth Beach for the opening um, ceremony for the SANE events done in Weymouth. So uh, we had 64 uh, integrated cast. Uh, we had two companies come over from Brazil. We had, the Royal, there was the Royal Navy was involved in this project. Uh, um, we had um, people with disabilities that were flying over a main road in Weymouth, um, oh. 22 feet up in the air, uh, doing surface skills. It was like the most wow. ma manic sh uh, thing that you could do and um, amazing at the same time. And working with the Brazilians were great. Yeah, so then you fell in love with the process because you've had an extremely broad and accomplished career to date. How have you overcome industry barriers in regard to your learning disability? I used to my own advantage. Um, and um, what I mean by that, and that's not me being cocky or anything, but I feel that um, there is a stereotype of what a person with a learning disability can do. So my whole objective is go in there, admit that you've got a learning disability because it's the um, because the work the employer needs to know and then smash the barrier um, if you can because um, yeah it's the only way that you're going to change the industry is by them seeing rather than them hearing a lot of the time yeah because theatre as an industry still has so much work to do in championing disabilities and normalising disability on stage um, who are the characters you want to see being written or the shows you want to produce? So I'm also an actor. So the shows that I would, the characters I would like to see, it's not just people. I want to see characters that are written for anybody. Um, it doesn't mean that we have to specifically um, cast for people with disabilities, but yeah, if there's opportunities, let's not give it to people without disabilities taking non-disabled role, um, disabled roles. Um, it's that's we wouldn't do blacking up anymore. So why are we still doing this whole thing of um, allowing um, non-disabled people taking uh, people with disabilities roles? So uh, that's one major thing. Um, I want people with their own life experiences. Um, Cryptos, which was on BBC Two, uh, one I think, called BBC Two from Matt Fraser, really was brilliant. And I would love to see a show like that, but with people with learning disabilities. Um, I'm a I'm a friend with Matt Fraser, so um, it is kind of uh, one thing that I really want to try and uh, influence in the future. <laughs> um, he doesn't know that yet, so, um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it'd be, it'd be great just as, um, but also just the person in the shop that works in your sh local shop, it doesn't, not everything has to have a uh, major character, you can literally have a person that works in a shop, that lives in a house, that has a boring life, um, but he's still there, he's still rep or she is still there, and still representation. Um, we we need to change this, and I want to give a big call out to thank uh, Manchester um, Triple C, done by Shirley Houston uh, and Melissa Jones and the Triple C team, 
because they have um, majorly are changing this industry for the better, in my opinion, um, of getting directors and producers and um, to actually see people with disabilities and to not let them get away with saying we don't know where to find them. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, so why do you think that disability is often overlooked in conversations of representation of diversity and intersectionality? Um, I don't think people think about it. I really, it's sad to say that, but um, I mean, there was talks about intersectionality, which I always find that word hard, if I'm honest, um, to understand. When I think of inter, I think about football and about trains. Um, so, um, so I think of Inter Milan and Inter Rail. So that's how my brain thinks of it. Um, so, um, but no, the talk around it is so complex. It's it's made out to be complex, and it shouldn't be. Uh, um, like diversity and intersectionality, from what I understand. Um, yeah we do get left out of the conversation um a lot of the time more people with learned disabilities get left out of these conversations rather than people with physical disabilities that's just my own assumption um and i could be completely wrong and if anyone on the podcast feels that way and wants to say that um then absolutely i i would love to have a chat but um yeah i just feel that it's um it's it's a topic that's never really been us having our voices in those conversations we're trying to change it but we never know yeah well i i think that's hopefully what we're doing here is just allowing those conversations to happen and um what you're doing at mind the gap is obviously they're an amazing company um and championing people with not only like you said physical disabilities but also learning disabilities so how do you think people can educate themselves to better understand challenges and support those with a disability? That's an interesting question. Um, I think um, listening to conversations that are happening out there at the moment, listening to podcasts, listening to um, people that you wouldn't usually go to as well, like companies that you wouldn't you might have heard about but you've never gone to any of their shows admittedly now with covid and all that that's been a bit harder but a lot of the work is now out there on um on youtube and on um their platforms so you haven't if you're living in dorset for instance you haven't got an excuse to not see a company up in edinburgh because they've um, their stuff is online or uh, Bradford or Manchester or down in Dorset or anywhere like that so um, education is always the key but also starting off young as well at the same time um, we have this issue of where if youngsters don't see and hear the changes that are happening now then we're going to be talking about issues around diversity and intersectionality and all this 30 years on the future and I'm going to be like 64 uh, I don't really want to be talking about this subject in, when I'm 64 <laughs> um, so what would you say to your younger self and early career artists 
I would say go for it. I would say that um, no matter what people think, um, it needs you need to just go for it now. Um, enjoy what the experiences that you have. Um, we don't know when it's going to end, but also try and find the goals that are out there. Find out what's different. A lot of the times, I mean, when I was a younger actor, I wanted to be an actor, and an artist. I wanted to be an actor. It's all I knew. It's all that I was told about. Um, you don't get told about the other jobs in the industry. Um, so find out what those other jobs are that's out there, and then uh, go from it there. Um, and yeah listen to the people that are actually encouraging you and not the doubters um the industry will always have pe uh, schools will always have people saying oh the industry it's, it's not going anywhere or you can't do it because of disability or your gender or whatever it is kind of don't you know if you've got that passion don't let anyone knock you down it's not you know the, you've only got one life and you're definitely you're definitely living it is is an understatement. <laughs> so going forward, what change in education and attitude would you like to see both on and off stage? Um, on stage, more representation of people with learned disabilities. Um, proper pay for us as well. Um, <laughs> the sad thing is um, that people with disabilities, um, because they're on the benefit system can't always get the proper pay um, for what they're doing and um, it's it's a sad fact of it uh, and we know as people in the industry that uh, we don't know when the jobs are going to come in for one minute to the next uh, so the benefit system is there to support people but if you're in the arts and your job's gone after six months, getting back onto the benefit system is a lot harder because they've seen that you've been working. That needs to that needs to change. Um, and that's for people with disabilities and people without. That needs to change. It needs to be accepted that um, the benefit system is there to support people um, instead of it being a barrier to people working. And we need to get the DWCP and the um, DMS and um, all of them actually talking to the, I think it's the DPS, it's the um, pensions people and the Department for Working Culture Media all talking together about creating this change and there's a lot of talk about it, we just now need to see the actions um, and it shouldn't be just from people with disabilities it needs to be from our allies as well so that's one change that I would love to see um, more voices in meetings which are happening at the moment um, for people with disabilities um, I realized that I was going to these major chats that were happening about COVID and about what the future is going to hold for our industry but my voice was the only person with a learned disability in that room, it felt like. I want to change, I want that changed. Um, there needs, I mean, I set up a small group of artists um, to have meetings so that our voices were being heard. I want more of that to happen. I want, I want to see um, people with learned disabilities' voices being heard more in conversations. Um, so, yeah, 
Um, I also do like one. Yeah, I, I don't doubt that you will be that change as well from this conversation. Uh, what else would I like to see? Um, more producers out there. More than more producers. Come on, guys. Um, it's it's a really interesting situation of where people uh, don't actually know what a producer does. Um, and if you look at if you speak to a lot of directors, um, a lot of them are actually doing their producing, but they don't actually recognise it as a producer job. Um, and that's not ever diminishing what us producers do and get assistant producers. But a lot of people do this as well. They just don't always recognise it. So um, I'm proud of setting up a, uh, a learn to say, well, oh, a uh, producer training course for people with learning disabilities and disabilities in general. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's hopefully happening soon. Um, that's a new project that I'm planning. Um, so, um, and yeah, seeing people with disabilities on our stages, but also backstage, front of house, working in teams, um, I'd love to see. Yes. Yeah. I think we heard a bit of music creep in from, um, one of the other rooms. What, what have you got lined up for the rest of the, <laughs> was that a show that we overheard? <laughs> yeah, you heard a bit of a show, so, um, Mind Gap are doing a show called Little Space, which last year went, was going on tour. Um, it's a really interesting piece. We're working with a company called Gecko on the piece. And uh, it's a physical theatre piece. Uh, ama amazing um, team. Uh, and yeah, it was going on tour and then COVID hit. So we are filming it at the moment. Uh, they're in the rehearsal process and then they're going to be filming it um, and then that will um, hopefully be going out to see um, in the next year, in this year. Uh, we're also doing a show called Anna, which is a project that we, uh, as part of Daughters of Fortune, which is our big uh, five-year project around learning disability and parenthood. Um, you might have seen about Sarah, um, but Anna is our foreign theatre pieces, which we take to uh, social workers and midwives, and uh, we work with uh, with them to discuss the issues that are happening. Um, and so, yeah, we've got that in, uh, that's getting filmed, that's been filmed actually, and that's going to be um, going soon out as well to midwives and social workers and different learned disabled groups, so. Um, there's a lot of work in the pipeline that we've got coming up. Yeah, lots. Paul, I want to end with a quote of yours. We put a lot of negativity on learning disabilities and disability in general. Let's stop having the fear of failure because we all fail in life, whether we have a disability or not. But the biggest failure is if we don't try and change it. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Paul. It's been brilliant talking to you. And you. Thank you so much.